Our subject is sanctification and the law. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. These verses are repeated again and again throughout the law. The summons to be holy because God is holy. The word holy comes from the German. We have the same word from the Hebrew also through the Latin as sanctified. Sanctified and holy are identical words. It is simply that they come through different languages to us, the one Germanic in origin, the other Latin. This commandment, ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, is a prefix to the entire law. It is restated again and again throughout the law as a reminder of the purpose of the law. In fact, one portion of the law, Leviticus chapter 17 through 26, is often called by scholars the Holiness Code precisely because over and over again throughout these chapters this commandment is restated. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The meaning of this is a very simple and an obvious one. The law is the way of holiness, the way of sanctification. The law over and over again is declared to be the way of sanctification. And at this point, the church has gone sadly astray. According to scripture, justification or salvation is by faith. It is through the sovereign grace of God. Man does nothing towards his salvation. He simply receives it from God. And even his receiving is of the grace of God. Salvation or justification is by faith. But sanctification is by law. God's law. And at this point, the church has gone astray. Phariseeism converted the law into a way of salvation, and this clouded the meaning of the law. The law was not the way of salvation, it was the way of sanctification. Then, Phariseeism, having converted the law into what it was not, a way of justification, altered the meaning of the law and substituted the traditions of men for the law of God, according to our Savior. But the church, too, has strayed. Before we examine, to a degree, the way in which the church has strayed on this, let us look at the root of its apostasy. It is the influence of Hellenic or Greek philosophy, Greek very early, when the church moved out into the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman philosophies began to affect the thinkers in the church. And the result was a new doctrine of sanctification. The biblical doctrine calls for the progressive submission of man and the world to the law of God. Man and his entire world are made holy to the degree that they submit to the law of God, which is the righteousness of God. The law 
is thus a program for conquest and victory, for the progressive sanctification of man and of his world. Even a partial obedience to the law of God leads to greatness, to a truly holy order. Thus, during those periods of the Middle Ages, when the law of God was very strongly enforced, civilization flourished. When the Puritans revived the emphasis on the law as the way of sanctification, again they built a great society. This country is coasting on the Puritan doctrine of sanctification of the law of the race. But Hellenic thought, Greek philosophy, was basically dualistic, at the least dialectical. It believed that the world could be divided into two separate substances or beings. On the one hand, matter, which was called darkness, and evil, and on the other hand, spirit, which is called light and goodness. As a result, salvation was deliverance from one order to the other. The way to be saved was to forsake the world of material things for the world of spiritual things. Or, for some, it was to forsake spiritual things for material things. You could take either aspect and magnify it. But it was forsaking the one for the other. The one was good, the other was bad. And so you were bad if you were material in your emphasis and good if you were spiritual in your emphasis. Of course, Satan being a spiritual being, you can be a total Satanist and still be spiritual. A man's fall was not into materialism. Man saw body and soul and both need to be reconverted. Both need to be regenerated. Both are like bad when man is fallen, and both are like good when man is redeemed. But Greek philosophy led many theologians to assume that instead of the whole man being fallen, one segment of him was fallen and the other remained pure. This is why so many Christian theologians have insisted that man's reason is not fallen. Therefore, all you have to do is to appeal to man's reason and you can convert him. In other words, man doesn't have to be born again. He can come to the faith rapidly. This is the implication, and it is false. As a result, for this kind of thinking, this false doctrine of sanctification which invaded the church. Sanctification as well as justification involved forsaking one realm for the other. It meant spirituality, it meant spiritual exercises. And as a result, very early, paganism entered the church. The old pagan Adagatis cult, which was really a form of Baal worship, very quickly became a part of the church. One of the foremost exponents of this old Baal worship of the Atargatis cult was the so-called Saint Simeon Starlight, the pillar saint. If you read about him, he sat on a tall pillar, I think it was about 40 feet high, with a three-foot platform on it and spent 37 years on that pillar. During the last 40 years of his life, he took no food at all during Lent. He despised the flesh, and when his flesh began to rot under his belt, 
and maggots infested it, he would pick up the maggots if they fell and place them back, ordering them to consume his wicked flesh. It is important to note, by the way, that the church of the day condemned him. He was not a saint in their eyes, though he claimed to be a Christian. He was basically a pagan. His philosophy was a part of the pagan Hellenic asceticism that had infected the day. You had on the one hand the cynics who magnified the flesh and forsook the spirit, and you had on the other hand these people of the other extreme of Greek philosophy who forsook the flesh for the spirit. But unfortunately, this kind of Neoplatonic asceticism crept steadily into the church. And as a result, we have then a long, dreary chronicle of cause, of self-torture, of flagellation, of fasting, of wearing hair shirts to mortify the flesh. Cases where ascetics or monks and hermits rolled in rosebush thorns in order to mortify the flesh feeling that thereby they would become more spiritual. They treated the body as though it were a satanic enemy. This was fully in line with Greek philosophy. But a weak body does not make for a strong mind. The Reformation restated the doctrine of justification very faithfully. Justification by faith. Luther, in his Romans, his lectures on Romans, also, in his analysis of Romans 3.31, yea, we establish the law, we make void the law, yea, rather we establish the law. Also restated that the doctrine of sanctification was the law, the rule of sanctification, the rule of life is the law. Unfortunately, however, the medieval influence was strong at this point, and there are points in both Calvin and Luther where there are hints of the old medieval element. As a result, this doctrine of pagan sanctification tended to creep back into the church. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the finest in church history, in its doctrine, uh, in its uh, chapter 13, entitled Of Sanctification, is excellent as far as it goes, but it's very vague about defining the way of sanctification. When it speaks of the law of God, it again introduces confusion. It speaks of the law as a rule of life in forming believers of the will of God and their duties, but it also is fuzzy as to some of the details and leads to confusion. The formula of Concord in 1576 spoke very clearly on this matter. The formula of Concord was between Lutherans and the Reformed believers. And in Article 5, Section 2, they declared, we believe, teach, and confess that the law is properly a doctrine divinely revealed which teaches what is just and acceptable to God and which also denounces whatever is sinful and opposite to the divine will. Then in Article 6, the law is declared to be in its third purpose that regenerate men to all of whom nevertheless much of the flesh still flees for that very reason may have certain rules after which they may and ought to shape their lives. The law gives us a way of sanctification as against the impulse of self-devised devotion. Now that phrase is very tough. 
The law gives us the way of sanctification as against the impulse of self-devised devotion. By and large, unfortunately, Protestantism has bypassed the law as the way of sanctification, except for Puritanism, in favor of the impulse of self-devised devotion. And the result has been a great deal of self-righteousness and theism. I have heard many, many pastors and read in many church periodicals that the way of sanctification, the way to be holy is to go to church twice every Sunday and to spend much time on your knees in prayer and much time going to midweek prayer meetings and this and that and the other things. And there are, by and large, in every church, a group of people much addicted to long-winded prayers, and you can boast of it. In fact, you can go to any evangelical bookstore and get manuals which tell you that you should spend a couple of hours a day in prayer, and this is the way the true Christians should live, and how much time you should spend in the house of God as though you grew in holiness by means of this sort of thing. Some few years ago, every person who was ordained to ministry received a little paperback book written by one of the most prominent evangelical ministers in the country, who is still active, which really made it clear that you were not really a Christian or a true minister of God, especially unless you spent about three or four hours every morning in prayer. It was a marvelous means of giving practically every new minister a guilt conscience if he didn't get up about four or five in the morning and pray for a few hours before breakfast, unless he finally decided uh, to check the whole rubbish. As many did, and thought, oh, well, the Bible doesn't amount to much because it's too unreasonable. But of course, this is not the scripture. And the Arminian and Holiness churches have really gone to great excesses. Not only long-winded prayer, and you remember what our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount said about long prayers. They think they shall be heard by their much speaking. None of us enjoy, do we, having someone come to ask us a very simple thing that could be said in a sentence on four or five sentences, and then taking half an hour of our time with a long-winded roundabout statement. It's a waste of our time. When we pray to God, let's pray to the point. We don't have to be long-winded. But with the Armenian and Holiness churches, it has not only led to emphasis on this sort of thing, but also on all kinds of emotional binges, rolling in the aisles, all kinds of historical manifestations which are called speaking in tongues, although they have been over and over again, case recorded, and it's been demonstrated that they are no language whatsoever, but simply a historical repetition of one or two syllables. In fact, in most of your holiness churches, a great deal of self-righteousness develops over testimony. I read recently the statement of one member of our holiness church in which he was quite upset. He thought he could make a better testimony than any of the young fellows who were testifying and he was mad because the preacher wouldn't let him testify. And he was a lot more holy than the others because he had bigger sins to confess. He had a long record of adultery. 
And the reason why the preacher wouldn't let him confess was that he had committed adultery with a woman preacher and the preacher didn't want that brought up. But he was more sanctified than the rest of them because he had a better testimony. Now, this is the kind of blasphemy it amounts to. When you have the impulse of self-devised devotion taking over. I could go on and tell you what goes on in some of these holiness churches, but I'm not interested in getting pornographic. But it becomes very foul, as every religion does when the impulse of self-devised devotion takes over. What it means is that man's sin takes over. And what becomes the way of sanctification becomes satanic. I found by and large when I was a pastor that I could stop the people who were troublemakers in the church because if there were a prayer meeting, they were the long-winded, self-righteous ones. They were the sanctimonious ones who prided themselves on how much they came to every kind of meeting. And they might very often add that they never smoked or drank, but oh, how they could stop it. Self-devised devotions are satanic. They lead to emotional binges which are closer to Baal worship. And Baal worship, in its extreme, went to cutting and castrating oneself. St. Paul, incidentally, refers to some of these people who have false ideas about justification and sanctification in Galatians 5.12. And he says, I wish those who are unsettling you would also become eunuchs. And they follow the practice of Baal worshippers. The King James, the James Version, translates that a little delicately, so sometimes you don't entirely get the meaning. But all kinds of errors abound when men seek a way of sanctification other than the law of God. It's very clear. We are saved through the grace of God, which we receive by faith. We are sanctified through the law of God, which is summed up for us in the Ten Commandments. It's that simple. And you grow in holiness, in grace, not because you're long-winded in praying, or good at getting up and giving testimony, but because you obey the law of God faithfully. And the more you grow in your obedience to the law, the more you grow in your sanctification. This is why, by and large, Protestant orthodoxy has become self. If it does not go off into the holiness type of thing, emotional binges, it gathers together people who are saved but have no means of growth because the law is not set as the means of growth, the way of sanctification. In the church of which I was until recently a member, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, one of the problems in the past decade was canalism. What was canalism? It was people who wanted to grow spiritually, wanted to grow in their sanctification, and they could not figure out any way except through emotional and spiritual exercises. And so they went in greatly for relying on the Holy Spirit, which meant ultimately all kinds of self-devised spiritual exercises which led to preposterous excesses. And very rightly, they had to be eliminated from the church. But there was no answer, because there was no emphasis on the law as the way 
is talking to God. When we talk to God, we talk to him naturally and freely. One of the healthiest things in a person's prayer life is to pray 20, 30 times during the day. Sentence prayer. Every time you have something that is upsetting you, Lord, give me patience to cope with this person. Or Lord, give me light so I can see my way through this problem. That is communication. But to get on your knees for an hour and to go over every doctor you know and every hospital and all the soldiers you can think of and just all over the landscape about things you aren't really concerned about but you feel it's your duty to pray, that is not communication. That is the impulse of self-devised devotion. It's precisely what our Lord condemned in the Pharisees. They think they shall be heard by their much speaking. In his small catechism, Luther said, The law teaches us Christians which work we must do to lead a God-pleasing life. It's that simple. The law is the way of holiness of sanctification. Next time you hear then someone saying that the law has no meaning for us as Christians, tell them then that they have forsaken the way of holiness for the past. We have no right to substitute man-made ways for the God-ordained way. Scripture makes it clear. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Ye shall be holy. By the Lord, your God, and holy. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast given us the way of holiness, the way of sanctification. We thank thee that thy law not only is for our growth, but for our joy, to make of our world a joyful, safe, and wonderful place. Give us grace, therefore, to walk in the way of holiness, and to recall men and nations to thy law, and to the end of the kingdoms of this world might indeed become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Those churches are indeed successful in getting people out. Yes, they are not successful in making them of any value as far as God is concerned. I know churches that I could cite some in the state of California quite well known that have several thousand members and their prayer meeting will have 1,500, 1,800 out. And the members are very proud of themselves. In fact, some will have two and three and four prayer meetings. And yet, I can think of one church which is of that size in a very small city. You would think that many people who are dedicated to the law, if they were, which they are not, the whole community would be changed. But the whole community is as sick and rotten as it could be. 
And you can go to the church and find that there are people of flagrant lawlessness for teaching Sunday school and holding office. So, the churches are successful, but not in God's sight. Many of these testimonial meetings are extremely sick and they do draw crowds precisely because it's a good place to hear a lot of dirt. Testimonials are religiously wrong. What are they a testimonial to? Yourself, basically. And what are we to witness concerning? It is Christ. Oh, supposedly it's what God has done for them. But there's quite a sanctimonious glow about the person. Basically what they are saying is how wonderful and superior they are. And in most of these churches, you'll find that there is a kind of a hierarchy. Those who are good at getting up and testifying feel that they are a spiritual elite, something like an amen corner. They are the upper crust spiritually because they are so good at getting up and witnessing and testifying. Yes. And you see, the existentialist temper of the world, even among people who've never heard of the world, is what leads to this kind of testimonial, because it's an emphasis on the individual and on the moment and on your feelings of the moment. And you have to feel all popped up, as it were, in order to be saved. And this is why the holiness churches have to have continuous revival, because if you're not hopped up, you've lost your salvation. This is why the non-Christian, in quotes, existentialists, need psychotics to be hopped up. It's basically the same thing. You have to be uh, worried up by your feelings, because your holiness, your salvation, ultimately, something from your self-devised devotion. This is existentialism. So you have existentialism in the church. Yes. 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 But this is not the only way to pray. Usually in uh, Old Testament times, the normal way of praying was standard. Sometimes, under stress of rage, emotion. There is no position of prayer. Just as there is no position of communication. I may be flat my back on, in the bed when I'm talking to Dorothy. I don't feel I have to stand up on my feet or get down on my knees to talk to her. I talk to her in whatever is the normal and the natural position at the time. Our prayer to God is communication. Now, in church, it may be formalized because there it is corporate. Just as in a group, we do not talk unless we have permission to speak. Everyone doesn't speak at the same time. So, in church, we formalize it. Therefore, in a church, there are proper positions. In some churches, standing in prayer, others kneeling. Both very, very fine. But in our private communication, just as with one another, we do not formalize our way of speaking. So, not the stop. It's informal. It's direct. It's personal. Yes. Exactly. 
our Lord was speaking against precisely the kind of thing that is going on now. The Pharisees were given to the same sort of thing that we have today in the churches. Yes. Yes, uh, there are many who feel that their way of uh, proving their Christian is to spend a certain amount of time every day in devotional books or in reading the Bible. Now, we do need to read the Bible, and people do not read it enough. But I have found that many of these people who read mechanically an hour or half an hour, two hours a day, are amazingly ignorant of the Bible. They're not reading it because they love it and are interested in it. They are reading it because it's a kind of spiritual exercise. And therefore, it's a means to an end. They're putting in time. Now, the way to read the Bible is to read it because it is important to know about God and to read it systematically. Read it to burn. So whether you read it for 10 minutes or 20 or whatever time, read it to learn something, not because it's a kind of a spiritual exercise that's going to give you so many points with God. You might as well then follow a Catholic method and recite so many Hail Marys or something like that, because it amounts to the same thing with many of these people. And... The thing that appalls me with the clergy is that so many of them do, according to their word, spend an hour or two hours reading the Bible every day, and yet they're really amazingly ignorant of it. They haven't learned anything about doctrine. They haven't learned anything about the law. They just read it because they feel it's their duty to read it. And it accomplishes nothing. Sanctification, uh, both God and man are active. But in sanctification, it's a question of are we growing or are we not? Now, I believe that one of the evidences of a lack of justification is an unwillingness to grow in sanctification. And I feel that many of these people today who claim to be Christians in some of these churches are Baal worshippers rather than worshippers of Christ. Yes. Yes. This is a good illustration. Now, foot washing does prevail among certain churches, and they are, I have a great deal of respect for some of these kids. But, I have also, over the years, known a couple of the pastors in these foot-washing churches, and I do know that they have a great deal of problem with morality, just plain, ordinary morality, and one of them finally left that particular church, which was for several centuries a foot-washing church, because he said, I looked around and I realized that I was having more uh, shotgun weddings out of my congregation and some of these churches that we were looking down on all around us. And said, I suddenly realized there was something wrong with us. And he said, we were doing things by rope. And foot washing was a sign and symbol of something. And we were interested only in the outward right not in the meaning of it. And, of course, for them, the law was nothing. And uh, this was one of the reasons they had problems. Yes. Yes. In those days, because people wore in Palestine sandals as footgear, roads were dusty. There were very few paved roads. 
The Romans were great road builders, but especially in Palestine, most roads were dirt roads. When you arrived at a house, your feet were hot, dusty, and tired. And it was the custom to have a servant come forward immediately with a basin of water and towel to wash every guest's feet. It was cool and refreshing. Now, when the disciples got together in the upper room, it was just our Lord and the twelve disciples. Thus, there was no one to do it. There was no servant there. Had they gone into the home of one of the members of the, of the twelve, and some of the members were very wealthy people. James and John, Peter, came from wealthy fishing families that had fishing fleets on Galilee. There would have been someone to do it. And here, that they all sat, thinking, uh, well, somebody ought to do it. We walked in from uh, Bethany, and downright uh, uncomfortable, but I'm not going to do it. I'm above this sort of thing. And so our Lord did it to teach them a lesson. Now, simply to repeat that kind of uh, ritual is meaningless. I know in the medieval period it was quite often repeated, and in some countries the kings did it. They did it to a number of uh, beggars or people brought in from the street. And of course, they made clear that they were all cleaned up first so the job wouldn't be too unpleasant for the king. So here was something to show the humility of the king as the Christian leader of the people. But it was really a means of uh, boasting. And everything was ensured against being unpleasant for him, because he certainly didn't want to wash uh, the dirty feet of the beggars. Now, what meaning is there in such a service, you see? It's been turned into something really blasphemous uh, in some cases. Yes. Pray without ceasing means pray continually, incessantly. It means that uh, we are continually in communication with God. So that the kind of thing I referred to, sentence first. In other words, your mind is always open to God. If you're working alongside of someone all day long, you're continually chatting with them as you work. Supposing two women are working in a kitchen, they're continually chattering and keeping one another informed as they go along and discussing various things. There may be silences from time to time, but there's a continual communication. So it is with God. God working under him and with him. Therefore, we keep our mind continually open to him and share every problem with him. If you misplace something, just say, Lord, help me to locate this thing I've misplaced. You see what I mean? This is praying without ceasing. Or if we have a problem, every time it begins to fret us, we bring it up in prayer to God. Just in a sense. This is praying without ceasing, continually being in communication with God. Right. A very good point. Our children are in communication with us, not only by their speech, but by their obedience. If they refuse to obey us, they have broken off communication, no matter how much they may try to talk. So that our communication with God involves obedience to Him. Otherwise, God has no desire to hear us. 
I know parents who simply close the door on their children. Made it clear to them, you've gone your own way, you've made your own bed, you've made your own marriage or your own life. We want no part of you. You have at every point defied us and disobeyed us. Now, the child may want to continue talking on their terms, but there is nothing to talk about. All they're trying to do is to milk the parents and yet disobey them and show contempt for them at every turn. Communication has been broken by their disobedience. Yes, the Holy Spirit is at work and we are told that he prays within us also with groanings that cannot be uttered when we are in deep distress. I do believe that it is, in some sense, blasphemy, yes. Now, whether it's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I'm not prepared to say, but it is blasphemy. Yes. Yes, they have become humanistic. They have become humanistic. And therefore, it's not Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, but Jesus as a kind of a divine man who's going to uh, rescue us all and uh, take us out of our problems that they're interested in. Not as the conqueror who will enable us to triumph. Yes, one last question. Can this work? No. We are, uh, as Christians, to place ourselves under the care and protection of God. And as we walk closely with him and under him by obeying his law and invoking his protection, we are progressively blessed and we do know his protecting care. And we are told, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man may do unto me. That's in Hebrews 13, verses 5, 4 and 5, I believe. Now, we are to place ourselves under God's care and protection. We are to realize that he is very near, closer to us than we are to ourselves. But we are also to remember that the way that we become close to him is by obedience. Well, our time is up. And next week we shall continue our studies in the Ninth Commandments and the Meaning of Sanctification of the Law.